Welcome in. Happy Friday. It's good to have you. Brian, how are you feeling today? Are you all right? <laughs> no, I was in contact how you doing? with patient zero. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I got I got sent home. Here. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> I, I imagine. I got sent home to work because I'm sick. And um, if you hear the the clanking of a of a good old-fashioned cough drop uh, throughout the show, just know that you would prefer to hear that than the than the the other the the other option which would be me hacking into the microphone which nobody wants to hear yeah so as long as you're okay brian i want to yeah. make sure you're okay I'm that's not, good i'm not as bad as you i have never i've that's haven't good. run a fever it's more like a yeah. head cold for me so if i thought i was okay. contagious i wouldn't be near danielle uh, well i mean <laughs> if we all start falling we could make the <laughs> argument watch yourself chris yeah um, well, first of all, it's nice uh, to be here once again. This is um, some breaking news I, I want to bring you right off the rip. Uh, as I was preparing today, uh, wrote up all my stuff, and this wasn't even on the map yet until just moments ago. The Michigan Public Service Commission today have approved a $368 million rate increase for DTE Energy customers. It would... Raise your monthly bill by about $6.50. That's roughly, a little under, 6.5%. They'll take effect in two weeks. Now, the regulatory commission saying that the vote to approve the rate increase is 40% less than the $622 million that DTE had originally wanted and requested. And look, I know that this is a hot topic. I know that Michigan is top 10 in electric rates around the country. I know that, yes, Michigan is prone to more outages more frequently than other people in other states around the country. But DTE has said numerous times that this is an ongoing process. And while some states say, well, let's just, you know, we've been burying these things under the ground for X number of years. Well, so have Michigan. Michigan has been burying lines in houses that have been built over the last 20 years. But that, it, it doesn't stop there. There is so much more that needs to be done in terms of trimming trees, in terms of updating the grid and making sure that the, the, the proper infrastructure is in place. But I, I certainly know that people are going to look at this with a very confused look and say, okay, well, you're going to get 300 and, and, uh, and, and, you know, $50 million, $370 million. What are you going to do with it? And I think that's the frustrating part here. But DTE has said they're going to continue to try to make those necessary changes. Will they? Will they be effective? We'll see. But that is just coming uh, down the pipe. Also, last night was the debate that nobody asked for. The, the, the debate that history will look back on with a very confused face. In Georgia last night, Ron DeSantis, Gavin Newsom. We're going to talk about it a little more in depth at, at 2.35. But I wanted just to leave you with a couple of my thoughts. And my thoughts are, I thought Gavin Newsom was often on defense, considering he was debating Ron DeSantis and it was being moderated by Sean Hannity. I actually did. I actually thought he did a nice job holding his ground. I mean, he did a pretty good job. There was there was one case that I I thought highlighted this. They were talking about COVID, 
and and Ron DeSantis came at him and called him a, a shutdown governor or whatever it was. And Newsom, boom, fired back. You passed an emergency declaration before California did. You closed beaches, you closed your restaurants, you closed bars. You had quarantines, you had quarantines and checkpoints all over the state of Florida before California did. And then he went on to say, by the way, Donald Trump said that. Donald Trump is the one who pointed all that out, not me. I thought DeSantis had his best debate performance of the debate season so far. I thought it landed a couple of good points, good blows, good memorable zingers. He called Newsom a liberal bully, talked about his shadow campaign. I actually thought, here's another surprise on the night. Not that I don't like Sean Hannity, I do. I actually thought thought he did a pretty good job of keeping things on the rails. Like, yes, Sean Hannity is a conservative. But there were times when things were getting out of hand. He didn't really impose himself or his views into the debate. Um, I think at one point he said something about, like, don't make me the hall monitor, which I thought was the equivalent of, I'll, you know, don't make me turn this car around. Um, I, I thought... I thought he did a nice job, too. I thought DeSantis took aim far more at Joe Biden than he did at Donald Trump, which, again, is the first hurdle for Ron DeSantis. Um, all in all, I'm not really sure if this moves the needle for, for either, but I, I thought both had some pretty good performances. Uh, in the meantime, we talked about uh, Corwell Health yesterday and the uh, security breaches there. Um, and now security officials are starting to sound the alarm. The number of security breaches connected to healthcare organizations are escalating at a particularly alarming rate. WJR senior news analyst Marie Osborne joins us on more on what we need to do to protect ourselves. Good afternoon, Marie. Hi, Chris. Well, these stats are just staggering when you look at the total number of cyber attacks. The U.S. the U.S. saw a 57% increase in the number of cyber attacks in 2022. Last year, healthcare organizations in the U.S. suffered an average of 1,400 weekly cyber attacks per organization. That's 86% higher than in 2021. Healthcare, financial services, education, and retail are the most targeted sectors in the U.S. The number one security threat, it's malware or malicious software. It's a program or code that's created with the intent to do harm to a computer network or a server. The health de- the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services reported that data breaches among healthcare organizations more than doubled from 2019 to 2021, and in 2022, at least 28 million healthcare records were breached. That's 28 million. Now, looking at the internet and cyber crimes in general, the FBI ranks Michigan as one of the top 10 states for losses to cyber crimes. Nearly 11,000 victims here. From ransomware to romance scams, cyber crimes, it's cost Michiganders $181 million. And the top crimes include phishing, non-payment, personal data breach, identity theft. And the highest losses nationally were reported by, you can guess this, older victims or those over 60. Chris, the FBI report shows also that total losses from Internet crimes have increased nearly 400%. In the last five years, you know what's shocking? Like when you when you break it down to a much more um, mm. 
a much smaller level, you know, there's a, a hack a, a hack attack every 39 seconds in the United mm-hmm. States. There There is over 4 million websites that have malware on it at any given time. And it just goes to show you that that this type of malicious activity, Marie, has changed so much over the years, right? It used to just be you'd get a phone call, this is the, you know, Prince of Niberia or whatever, <laughs> and we want to give you money. It's it's so much more different. It's so much more nefarious, and it, it is... It is taking aim at some of the the most important institutions when it comes to your sensitive data. And and I think that's what's scary the most. Absolutely. Our personal data and and really our medical data, it's so personal and so important to us to keep it private. And, And when you look at even a bigger picture than that, think about how much money companies and corporations spend every single year trying to protect themselves from this type of activity. Millions of dollars. Think about whether those millions and billions of dollars could go into research and development, maybe hiring more employees. This is a very serious problem. Well, companies certainly have to spend that kind of money on on proper security measures. But in often cases, it's still not enough. Often cases, those are, are still... The big targets, they're the big, you know, tuna in the sea that that these that these hackers want to get in on mm-hmm. and uh, and they will find their way in one way or the uh, another. Sometimes it takes a little bit of time, a little bit of patience, but the, oftentimes they do get in. Marie Osborne, thank you very much. Thank you. All right. So what do we do to protect ourselves going forward? How how really nefarious is this? How big of an issue is it? We'll talk about that next on JR Afternoon. All right, welcome back. As a reminder, if you miss anything we do on the show, thegreatvoice.com, you can catch us on uh, Alexa or Google or the app on, on your phone, in the car, wherever, wherever you need to find us, we are, are there for you. Uh, also, more breaking news to pass along to you. We, we have a Friday news dump. Uh, the Michigan Public Service Commission has ruled that the relocation of Enbridge Energy's Line 5 oil pipeline uh, from the Straits of Mackinac to a tunnel beneath the lake bed is, quote, the best option to improve safety while still securing the public need for fossil fuels. Commissioner Dan Scripps uh, noted that the current placement of the dual pipeline on the lake bed west of of the Mackinac Bridge in the Straits where it is exposed to potential anchor strikes, presents a risk that must be addressed. It's clear, Scripps says, we need to get those pipelines off the bottomlands and out of the Great Lakes. And my favorite part of this story, and we can get into it a little little later on. Uh, by the way, we are doing a... Somebody called or texted in, I believe it was. Um, two weeks ago, we did a, just an open line segment for, for you guys. Um, if there's something that you wanted to talk about, give you the opportunity. Um, somebody called it free for all Friday and, uh, Brian's eyes lit up like a, like a, like a young boy on Christmas day. He was very excited. Love the name. And, uh, and we're going with free, free for all Friday. So we'll do that, that at three eighteen. I'll give you some more thoughts on this, but people were shouting in the meeting room, shut it down and blood on your hands. I just, I don't know, man. I, I don't, I don't. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know how you could possibly think that way 
when you're actually protecting the Great Lakes. You're, you're trying to remove it from there, but we'll get into that. So as more and more of these hacking attacks pop up in really sensitive areas, I mean, I think there's a lot of due diligence that people do, right? If you've got a laptop at home, a computer at home, you know, you get your security software, you do what you can. You got to be diligent when it comes to shopping online or, or, you know, where you're putting your credit card into, or if you're using a credit card or a debit card, all of those things. But it, it feels like with all of the, the, the ins and outs of your daily life, taking kids here and there to sports, to school, picking up the grandkids, going out to dinner. I mean, it is easy to get lost in the process of feeling secure when maybe you're not, or maybe there are vulnerabilities. And unfortunately, hackers are there to exploit them. Matt Laurie is the CEO of Oxium, an IT company, and joins us. Matt, good to have you. Hi, Chris. Great to be here. It, you know, we have seen... We have seen some really impactful, really scary ransomware hacking attacks, uh, the latest one with Corwell Health. But but this is a much bigger problem, isn't it, than just one healthcare entity or one hospital chain. It, it is a much bigger, more almost insidious type of problem. It is, yeah. I mean, and as, as Marie had just said uh, just a few minutes ago, I mean, she, she gave you some of the statistics on this. Um, it's it's very prolific, and you know now we're seeing a, a lot more of a concentration in more of critical infrastructure areas as well. Things that are very critical to our to our livelihood, uh, you know, here in the United States. So when it comes to let's take it from a business perspective first, because we as consumers or we as the public are oftentimes shopping online or shopping uh, or, or, you know, going to, you know, get a physical or get checked out at the doctors. So you're, you're trusting other entities with your secure information. How important is it for those companies, big businesses to try to put as, as big of a, a wraparound and a safe of a wraparound on our information as possible. I know that can be pricey, but it almost seems like that's part of this business model that people put out now. Yeah, the, the, the real challenge is not necessarily the big business. It's really the, the, the theory of you're only as strong as your weakest link. And every one of the big businesses in the United States is supported by a, by a network of smaller businesses. And it's those smaller businesses that are, that are having so many of the vulnerabilities. And if we look at where these where these attacks typically um, find their way in, it's through those it's through those smaller entities, the feeder entities, the tier, the tiered uh, suppliers, if you will, uh, to any of these uh, larger organizations. The big companies have these enormous budgets. They've got very educated staff. You know, they're following best practices in, in most cases. But it's these these others that that have just not taken things seriously, and we have the data to show it. Is this a, a dangerous, a particularly maybe vulnerable time of year? Um, you know, this time we always do see an uptick, but there's a lot more people um, utilizing the, utilizing the internet, so it tends to be statistically a higher time of year for uh, for issues to occur. The other thing is that people are just busier now, and so some of the some of the disciplines that they're following uh, kind of go by the wayside. Oh, I'm I'm moving quick. I click on something uh, um, uh, maybe that I would have put a little more thought to if I wasn't so busy. 
in terms of the federal government's responsibility here, do they have one? And, and what would that look like? Yeah, so, you know, there's, there's some different um, uh, rules and, and regulations or, or advice that's being pushed. Um, uh, it's, it's been done a few times through the organizations that are supporting the, uh, the Department of Defense. Uh, so there's some some different protocols. There's there's something called the CMMC, the uh, Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, uh, that any of the vendors that are that are supporting the uh, the DoD need to be following. And there's been a lot of talk about pushing that to different industries, but it's it's never really fully taken hold. And even right now, they're in the, the process of kind of revamping that. So it it's it's a it's a process that's happening, but you know, government seems to be um, a little bit clunky with making it. Um, you know, really um, uh, uh, taking taking hold and being a requirement um, for for organizations that are really uh, adding to the vulnerabilities here. You talked about you're only as strong as your weakest link, and I think that's probably true for anything. But when it comes to making sure that you are secure all the way around, how important is that, especially when you consider, um, you know, hackers have become more adept at this. Sure, you know, I mean, they're, um, you know, every time, every any time a, a gate is put up, there's a guy trying to figure out how to climb over it and, and get through it. Um, so, you know, it's it's a constant game of of cat and mouse. So it's not like uh, this is something that's a one and done um, sort of fix. It's something that you first have to assess where you're at, and then actually take the initiatives to then uh, to shore it up, install the solutions to fix it, configure those, and then manage them on an ongoing basis. So it's it's a it's a really a never ending um, you know, piece of business that, that, that people just need to understand is, is here to stay. And and this isn't always even something that is as brazen as it may seem initially, right? Like you can, uh, when, when Corwell health gets hacked, um, it's, it's shocking because so many people, uh, across this chain are, are impacted. It's not just Michigan, it's all over the United States. But when you consider that there is malware all across the internet, at all different times uh, or at any time there are hacks happening virtually every minute of the day and if there are there are so many it's so difficult to identify when your website or your systems or or anything is is infected with this type of malware even though you may have some of the top of the line uh uh, uh software it, it is so much bigger than just a hack on a healthcare system or a school or critical infrastructure. It is so much bigger. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, the body is constantly fighting uh, cancer cells, <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, at all times. It's, it's, it, it is a hundred percent constant. And the, the challenge is, is that I think that, that we're, we're numb to the FUD, you know, numb to the fear, uncertainty and doubt. And, and, and what we keep hearing on the news is there's all these hacks, there's all these hacks, but the action isn't being taken. And some of that is coming from, an overwhelming number of solutions like you had mentioned you know there's all this software to to protect to protect people but that software first of all there's tens of thousands of of different solutions out there for cybersecurity um, mm-hmm. that, that you could buy right and and what what it requires is it requires somebody to simplify that for the for the folks implement it and then run it yeah and that's the challenge is that is that we're we're operating on on old old modalities where we're thinking that the cost of the business doesn't doesn't need this. 
No doubt about it. And it is it is incredibly vital. Matt Laurie, I'm up against it. Uh, always good information. We'll talk to you again very soon. Matt Laurie of Oxium. Got to take a break. More next on JR Afternoon. So Enbridge with a big win today in the Michigan Public Service Commission. They ruled that the relocation of Enbridge in the Line 5 pipeline should be under the Straits of Mackinac. Not on the lake bed but underneath in the tunnel, which is what Enbridge has been trying to do for years. Until the Whitmer administration took over, it was done, it was planned, the green light had been given, everything was raring to go. But that had caught a snag when the Democrats took office, and there has been an effort to kill the project altogether. And and this isn't, this isn't the... Um, end of this there are still a couple of of other hurdles that still need to be cleared in order for this to to be again given the green light uh enbridge waiting on a federal review by the u.s army corps of engineers which is expected to be completed uh by 2026 so we're still um a, a number of years out from that as well uh, in the meantime, we talked very briefly at the start of the show. Uh, by the way, anything you miss, you can go back, listen uh, on uh, thegreatvoice.com. But we talked a little bit about the debate last night between Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom. And I gave you some thoughts, particularly as it related to the the actual nuts and bolts. I thought it was run pretty well. I actually thought Sean Hannity did a nice job of not inserting himself into the debate, which is, can be difficult when you're somebody like Sean Hannity, who's very opinionated, very openly conservative. And so to have that type of stance, it can be difficult to not insert yourself or phrase things in certain ways. But I thought he did a pretty good job. And I thought for the most part, both DeSantis and Newsom did a decent job. I don't, I don't know exactly if there was a winner or a loser. I, I don't know. Maybe Aaron called it. He's the director of debate at the University of Michigan, and he joins us. Uh, Aaron, good to talk with you. Nice to be back. What did you make of the debate last night? Who who was the big winner? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if there was a, a big winner, but I think um, I think Ron DeSantis probably benefited the most in the short term. Um, you know, he's the only one currently running for president. He's already had three of these debates. He's got another one coming up uh, Wednesday of next week. He really needs the momentum for his fledgling campaign. Uh, you know, Nikki Haley has kind of been the upstart and has benefited the most uh, from these debates in the, in the past few months. And so, so I think uh, probably helped in the short term. I think he'll get some good media coverage out of it, maybe some donations. Um, and he'll be able to kind of use this experience at the debate next week and say that he stood toe to toe with, you know, formidable Democratic governor of a, a major state and, um, and say, hey, if I can do that to, to him, then, you know, give me the chance to be on a debate stage with uh, President Biden so I can show you what I could do there. And so I think that it should be, um, you know, should be beneficial to him in the short term. But I think of what we've seen in the cycle in all the debates, um, they don't provide a huge kind of shift uh, in the overall race. And so I don't expect a, a major change, but uh, definitely didn't hurt himself last night. My My thought going into this was, this wasn't going to be apples to apples, right? When you've got a bunch of Republicans on stage, 
Maybe ones that were Red Delicious and Granny Smith and Macintosh, but they're all apples, right? Everybody's relatively talking about the same thing. This was going to be more apples to oranges. And so I thought with the fact that Ron DeSantis was going to be the only Republican on the stage, he was going to be able to speak from a position of authority because nobody else was challenging him from his side of the aisle. Do you feel like that helped him, hurt him? Does that put him in a more favorable light? less favorable light amongst voters? Where, where do you view that? No, I think it helps them. I mean, you know, we've kind of seen the, the stage shrink of these primary debates that started out with eight or nine candidates and then, you know, down to six and then four. And But kind of a one-on-one debate is always the most advantageous where kind of you get a lot of time and you don't have to worry about only kind of interjecting yourself every every once in a while. And it's just much more difficult. So, you know, kind of the ideal is just going with a, another candidate. And yeah, it was a totally different experience. And these other debates with Republicans, um, they generally have the same ideology and philosophy. They may have some small nuanced difference at the margins, but for the most part, they're kind of saying similar things and some of them even have similar backgrounds. And so it's a lot easier to contrast yourself. And last night, I think we saw you probably couldn't have, you know, two more diametrically opposed um, governors of, of major states, different um you know, governing philosophies, visions for the future. And so kind of putting that stark contrast out, I think, was um, was was favorable. And I think both candidates will be rewarded for kind of participating in this non-traditional format. And, um, you know, they certainly didn't have to do it. And we'll see what the ratings are. The ratings for the regular debates have been declining. But, you know, if it's a, if it's a huge number, then, uh, then it'll show that he got, you know, exposed to a, a very big audience. And that could be uh, helpful, but um, you know, I think probably helped the, the political prospects of, of both of them for the, the long term. It definitely felt a little more like a spectacle to me than than a normal what what we've seen the last few GOP debates. I, I think when you settle into a to a party debate, you kind of know what you're expecting. This one was was billed as as a, you know almost like a, a heavyweight match between a couple of really powerful. Uh, influential governors uh, that that are happen to be on opposite sides of the aisle. There was a couple of times where Ron DeSantis pointed out that maybe Gavin Newsom is running some shadow campaign if if Joe Biden either changes his mind and and doesn't run again for a second term or is unable to run for some reason uh, for a second term. Do you feel like this is a an a, 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 an advantageous way if that were to be the case? that you would be able to get your name out there? Is, is that is that a, a good way for Gavin Newsom to do that, do you think? Yeah, and I, and I don't think it's for this election. I think, you know, when he kind of said that neither of us are likely to be the, the candidate this time around, I think that's probably correct and what most people think. But, you know, this is really just kind of a proxy or shadow for the 2028 uh, election, which mm. never too early to kind of start that. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I think everyone's expecting another Trump-Biden rematch, and no matter – who wins that? They're both term limited in the future. And so 2028 is going to be a free for all and everyone's going to run. And so may as well start getting your name out there. I mean, obviously, he has a, he's a known commodity in California, but nationally and especially introducing yourself to a Fox News audience that you know maybe millions of people is beneficial. And we've seen him do other things kind of in the same regard. He was out in the Simi Valley debate in the spin room uh, kind of talking up the, you know, the administration and he was in Israel recently and was involved, um, you know, with the, the Chinese leader. And so he's doing a lot of things to try to check the boxes for someone that wants to 
run for president in the future. I don't think it'll be this time, but you know, never say never. Um, but um, you know, both both of the participants may already have their eye on a very competitive race that's coming up in 2028. Do you think this debate is changing the way that the Republican National Committee is looking at debates? Because there are reports that the RNC is considering changing the rules for presidential debates, at least on their side of the aisle, uh, they would be able to participate in non-RNC sanctioned debates. Is that something that uh, you think was spurred on by this type of event? Or do you believe this was a change maybe in the works well before? Yeah, I think it was a change in the works. I mean, the RNC has been really getting pummeled by all sides. You know, Donald Trump is one of them to stop the debates and kind of just have him be the prohibitive front runner, kind of given his status in, in the polls. And other candidates were complaining. They were, you know, some of them wanted kind of to do their own side debates, uh, Chris Christie and Vivek Ramaswamy. And then they kind of got slapped down by the RNC about that. And so they just kind of can't win. And also the process has just been really tough. There's only been three debates so far, this fourth one in Alabama, which is much less than the last cycle. The front runner hasn't participated in them. And so I think this move will kind of decrease some of the pressure um, uh, on the RNC chair that, that Trump has been doing. And also will just give them the freedom to, to have if they want to do one-on-one debates. You know, maybe this makes it more likely that kind of Trump could come back in some kind of format. Um, but as we get into Iowa, New Hampshire, 2024, when voting starts, you're just going to see probably a lot more debates, a lot more made for um, television debates. But at least last night will give you an idea of what those could look like. Um, with kind of different moderators and they're controlled by some of the different media networks. So um, I did see that report and I think that it's just, that's kind of been a long time coming. And we're also going to see uh, changes in the general election. You know, the commission on presidential debates has been responsible for them for the last several decades and they may not be part of the process in the general election debates because of uh, RNC, um, you know, disagreements with them. And so yeah. we're going to kind of go back to the more traditional format and we'll see how that changes from what we've been doing. Aaron Call with the University of Michigan. Thanks so much. Appreciate your time as always. Talk again soon. Anytime. Take care. Yeah, you got it. Uh, We got to take a break. Uh, Speaking of Republicans and the nonsense involving George Santos, uh, a move has been made on him. We'll talk about that next on JR Afternoon. All right, welcome back. Good to have you on this Friday. A historic vote was taken today. New York Congressman... George Santos has been expelled from Congress. Yes, expelled. He now becomes the sixth ever House member to be removed. It is an unprecedented move. 311 votes were cast to remove Santos. And 114 voted against it. Two voted present. So, when you consider that this is just the sixth person ever voted out of Congress, um, does it set a certain precedent? George Santos says it does. It sets a very dangerous precedent going forward. Professor Jordan Cash is an assistant professor of political theory and constitutional democracy at Michigan State University's James Madison College and joins us. Professor, good to have you. Thank you for having me. Do you subscribe with George Santos's logic here? Is Does this set a dangerous precedent considering all the things that he is both alleged and found guilty of doing? I don't think so. I think that, you know, as you mentioned in coming in, that this is only the sixth person to be expelled 
from the House, most of those other six were expelled during the Civil War. Um, as you mentioned, Santos has a lot of allegations against him already. So this seems like a very unique case. And considering the difficulty of expelling a member, it takes a two-thirds vote of either the House or the Senate, depending on which House is voting on an expulsion, it's very difficult to expel a member. And it seems like Santos uh, is a unique enough case that I doubt this sets a precedent where we'll see a lot of people being expelled routinely. So before, what was the, the basis of the the first five uh, representatives to be to be basically fired from Congress by their 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 uh, cohorts? Um, what what were the the basis for those ex- expulsions? Sure. So when we're looking at just the House, because we have had a lot more people actually expelled from the Senate, um, most of those, a vast majority of expulsions, both in the Senate and the House, were in the breakout of the Civil War, where you had Southern senators and Southern members of the House leave, and so they just kind of expelled them. It was kind of a you know, you're not firing me, I quit sort of situation sure. with a lot of those guys. Um, more recently, uh, it's been typically the same kind of things we see with Santos, where there have been criminal allegations. Um, in 1980, the case of Michael Myers, who's a Democrat out of Pennsylvania, he was convicted of bribery, so he was expelled from the House. Uh, Jim Trefricant, he was a Democrat from Ohio. He was convicted of bribery and racketeering and tax evasion in 2002, so that's when he was expelled. So in all these cases that weren't Civil War related, it had to do with criminal charges against these members before they were expelled. Do you think the the House acted appropriately in this case? Um. That's harder and to be I'm not as familiar with the precise allegations against Santos, so I hesitate mm-hmm. to make a judgment call against that. I do think that with how much of a distraction Santos has been and some of his activities has been, I don't think it's a surprising thing to see in addition to all the allegations against him. You you talked about how long ago that these previous five expulsions took place. I mean, you're talking about going all the way back to the civil war. Mm -hmm. Does, does there need to be uh, additional clarity uh, added to the constitution when it comes to expulsion? Or do you feel like the language that's there now as it pertains to the power that other fellow lawmakers have in this particular arena, do you feel like it's an adequate, a set of rules and circumstances. I think it's an adequate set of rules and circumstances. It's always tricky when you talk about, you know, making the constitution more specific because you can't, the constitution can't account for every possible circumstance mm-hmm. that may arise. So leaving to a certain extent, leaving it to the prudential judgment of lawmakers, I think is a wise thing. And as we can see from these other expulsions, Congress has been very careful when it comes to expelling members. And obviously the Civil War, that's a very unique case, but even these other more recent cases where it's issues of criminal activity, you know, that's, those are particular circumstances that might justify these kind of expulsions. So it's not 
it's not an instance where you see Congress often using this to punish political opponents or to try to gain a majority over a minority party or something like that. Uh, I think leaving it open and the kind of traditions of Congress to only utilize this authority when there are legal charges seems to have been, I think, enough to allow for allow for this power to be used, but not to be used in excess. Uh, interesting stuff. Professor Jordan Cash uh, with Michigan State University's James Madison College. Thanks so much. Appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Yeah, you got it. 800-859-0957, 800-859-0WJR. Do you believe that the House acted appropriately here? Because when you consider going all the way back to when these allegations started to drip, drip, drip out, it became more and more clear that something was was very wrong here. Something was very amiss. Like, not only did this guy just, I mean, out and out lie to get elected, which I guess is one way to do it. And you can make the argument that politicians lie all the time. But the way that he lied, the way that he manufactured his background and his family's background and where he came from and his schooling and... Then you start getting into all the the, the types of uh, laws that he is alleged to have broken, like wire fraud and uh, campaign finance laws. I mean, it, it becomes apparent that something was very amiss here. Do you believe that Congress acted appropriately? 800-859-0957, 800-859-0WJR. Uh, let's go out to Mark in Livonia. Mark, I got about a minute left here. What's up, bud? You know, I, I, I've personally spoken to George Santos in X spaces, and I feel like he is really a, a great representative. Um, all of these allegations, uh, you know, let's contrast to the other outright liars in Congress like Adam Schiff. What he did was, was absolutely horrendous. He still has his job. Everybody knows he lied. And then the Democrat Party is real quick to, to come up behind him and say, oh, he didn't do anything wrong. You know, if we're if we're gonna if we're gonna kick George Santos out of Congress, Adam Schiff definitely shouldn't be in Congress anymore. And let's talk about Bob Menendez. Same thing. Same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I see the I see what this is 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 a political a politically motivated hit job against George Santos because George Santos represents and identifies more closely with newer conservative viewpoints that the Democrats are outright scared of. They don't want the, the general population to know that conservatives elected George Santos through grassroots movements. Sure, maybe yeah. he muddied water about his, about his background, <laughs> about his history. Uh, let's talk about um, Ilhan Omar's use of her, her political campaign donations. Or, or better yet, let's talk about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's use of her political donations. They're still in Congress, aren't they? And, yeah, Mark, and, and I, I don't disagree with you, and I'm sorry I'm up against it. I'd love to talk with you some more. I, I, I don't disagree, but I just wonder that if Republicans who now have control were to go that route and go after political opponents, I, I don't know that that would look right, so I think they got to start with George Santos. All right, welcome back. Good to have you. Three o'clock hour. Still lots to do today. By the way... Coming up at 3.18, we'll do it at 3.35. We're calling it Free For All Friday. A couple weeks ago, we did open lines. Look, we we do our best to bring you the information that you need, that we think you need, that we think you'll like and will respond to. 
Um, but oftentimes there's other stuff that you guys want to rap about too. So we give you an opportunity to do that. We'll, we'll, we'll have that for you at 318. A caller texted in or, or a, a listener texted in when we did it a couple of weeks ago and called it free for all Friday. And we said, yeah, that sounds good. Free for all Friday. So we'll do that coming up at 318. A couple big stories uh, breaking this afternoon in the last hour, uh, including the Michigan Public Service Commission. Big decisions from them today. Let's start with the most recent one. They tackled the DT Energy tax or a rate hike. They did agree and approve a $368 million electric rate increase for DTE Energy customers for the upcoming year. That's about 60% of what DTE had asked for. They had asked for north of $600 million, uh, but $622 million, I believe it was to be exact. Um, but they're going to get $368 million in a rate increase. What does that mean for you? Well, the average residential customer will pay about $6.51 more per month from their electric bill. So, I, I, and look, I know that, that that gets shredded a little bit. I know that DTE consumers, to a certain extent, have come under fire for not only the price of, of our electricity, but then for the, the reliability of the grid. And Michigan is a top 10 state in in the highest cost of electric rates in the United States. And we're also very high on the list on on how often we lose power and for the for the duration of power outages. So for a company that has come under fire for asking for rate increases and and not making the appropriate fixes, I, I think that draws a lot of confusion and anger from a lot of folks. And and I would just say that it's 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 I compare it a little bit to our roads. There's no way that Michigan, if we put boatloads, I mean, if you're talking about billions of dollars, putting billions of dollars into our roadways, there's no way that we're going to be able to get even up to an adequate standard in the near future because we are too far gone. I feel a little bit the same way about our our electric rates and our reliability, the grid. I, I, it's going to take some time. It's, it obviously is going to take some money. So DT has laid out a whole host of issues. They're talking about adding different technologies to get people back online quicker. Obviously tree trimming, putting lines under ground with new builds, all those things are, are underway, but it is just going to take time. Also the Michigan public service commission today ruling that the relocation of Enbridge line five pipeline that lay on the lake bed of the, of the Mackinac Straits should be tunneled underground for quote, the best option to improve safety while still securing basic public need for fossil fuels. Um, Dan Scripps, the chair of the commission said that the current placement of the pipeline on the lake bed is exposed to potential anchor strikes, which we know is, uh, true and presents a risk that needs to be addressed. And I think this is exactly, it's exactly what Enbridge has been saying this for years. It's for years. We now have the ability to put this thing underground. 
natural gas isn't going anywhere. So we still need to provide people with natural gas. The safe way to do it is to put it underground. And that's what they have been maintaining. And to me, it makes all the sense in the world. You take it out of the lake and put it underground. Then it really becomes much safer. But they've had roadblock after roadblock after roadblock when when the Whitmer administration took office in 2018. And so they've been having to deal with this. There still are some issues that they're going to have to deal with and clear hurdles. But I'm, I'm not anticipating that they have any issues. And I would anticipate this project is going to go forward. But in the next couple of years, they still have some things to to get done. Uh, also, um, wanted to bring this up. A uh, little bit of sports. We'll, we'll talk to Steve Courtney coming up at 348. I don't know if you've been following college football this year to the extent of Deion Sanders. He left an HBCU, Jackson State, to take a job at Colorado. And it was... I think it struck a lot of people in the offseason last year that he took the job. But he said God told him that this is where he needed to go, so he went. And he reinvigorated a program that won one game last year. They started the year 3-0, and beat a couple of good teams. TCU, to name a few, which was in the championship game last year after beating Michigan. They ended up losing eight of their last nine and finished the year 4-8. and Deion Sanders has been named Sports Illustrated Sports Person of the Year. And that, to me, is wild. Because for a guy as engaging and as likable, and and in in my mind, uh, kind of refreshing for college football because he kind of tells it how it is, um, I'm not sure a four-win football coach deserves to be Sports Person of the Year even if that is a, a a much better win total than what the Buffs had last year. Just found it very strange that, you know, sports person of the year, you would think would be a pretty impactful person or somebody who did something on or off the playing surface or had an incredible season. I'm not so sure that Deion Sanders should be sports person of the year, but that's uh, the decision that Sports Illustrated made. Uh, in the meantime, Flint, Benton Harbor, a couple of cities in America that have been associated with serious water problems. Well, now the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is proposing a rule that would require water systems across the country to replace millions of lead service lines within the next 10 years. WJR Senior News Analyst Marie Osborne joins us with those details. Hi, Marie. Hi, Chris. Well, how many pipes with this are we talking about here? Nine million pipes across the country are the ones that the EPA wants to replace, requiring them to be replaced in 10 years. And the cost for all this, between 20 and $30 billion, $15 billion in funding coming from the federal government, the rest coming from utility companies. Now, this would be the strictest limits in lead and drinking water since the federal standards were established 30 years ago. In 2021, analysis by an environmental nonprofit group found that half of the population in the U.S. drinks water from systems with lead levels exceeding those recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics. Lead pipes have been banned in the U.S. since the 1980s. Despite all of the press Michigan has received in recent years, they're not alone in this problem. Illinois and Rhode Island, 
They are the states with the highest proportion of service lines that need to be replaced. Michigan has about 11% of the lines which need to be replaced. The national average is right around 8%. Experts say no amount of lead exposure is safe. In adults, it causes strokes, kidney disease, cancer. Well, and the impact on children is even more serious. That impacts their long-term growth and development. Chris, the EPA will conduct and collect public comments on this proposed rule for 60 days. Then they'll hold a public hearing in mid-January. Hmm. There's no doubt that it's a problem. And if we have the ability to fix it, we should. Boy, doesn't that seem like an uphill battle? A 10 years? Uh, it just seems almost impossible. And nine million pipes. Although, I mean, you, look, they know where the pipes are, so that's you know they know how to get them out. They've done this before. Flint and Benton Harbor, by the way, are almost one hundred percent. All of their lines mm-hmm. have been replaced, so this can be done. It can be done. It's going to be time consuming. It's probably going to be cumbersome, but it is something that probably needs to be done, especially when you consider. Flint and Benton Harbor as uh, cases A and B. Uh, Marie Osborne, thank you very much. Have a good weekend. Thank you. All right, we'll take a break. Coming up next, 318, Free for All Friday. Uh, Whatever's on your mind, whatever you want to talk about, uh, we will discuss it next on JR Afternoon. All right, welcome back. 800-859-0957. 800-859-0WJR. Did this a couple of weeks ago. I was on vacation last Friday, but we, we wanted to bring this back because, look, you guys liked it, uh, and and if you guys like it, this is something that we'll we'll continue to do. But you know, we we do our best to try to bring you the topics that I think are interesting, that I think are important, that I think have real meaning, and oftentimes we can't get to it all. So if there's something that you're thinking of that's on your mind that you've been wanting to to t- talk it out, hash it out with, um, now's the time to do it. 800-859-0957, 800-859-0WJR. It's the number for you to call and to text. Uh, let's go to Dave in Rochester. He kicks us off. Hello, David. Hey, good morning, Chris, or afternoon. Hey. Free for all afternoon. afternoon, Friday. That's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> uh First of all, I disagree with your guest. I believe Ron DeSantis got the eviscerated. He got filleted as far as his chances for uh, relaunching in 2024. It really exposed him. Uh, Newsom did. He, he embarrassed him on liberty, on some of the core principles of a Republican. Uh, and as far as, you know, facts, my God. Uh, you talked about immigration. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Newsom was right. Newsom was right. Per, per capita, there are more people in the last two years per capita. In other words, among the 39.5 million Californians who moved, or rather, who came in from Florida then moved to Florida. So r- relative to between the two states, okay, now, the whole issue is kind of a red herring as far as what's going on in this country. We're, we're, we're way behind on the ratio of young people to supporting old people. So you're talking mm-hmm. about a whole thing with California, not even 1%. Wall Street Journal runs these articles and stuff like that. And then you would think it was a mass exodus. In fact, the right wing uses that term, mass exodus. Not even 1%. Okay, you're talking about that a lot. Dave, let me, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. 
Why do you think it is that we are seeing less young people, more old people? And, and why, what do you think's causing that? Oh, easy, easy. And the xenophobia among the Republicans as far as bringing in, bringing in all the people who want to come here. We don't want to bring any of them in. My God, there's an excess who could, who could shore up the productive element, age 25 to 54 working people who contribute to Social Security, taxes, and everything else. No, there's, there, there's more supply than the demand because of the quotas we have on the working visas, on, on natural immigration, on, on, on the whole caboodle. All we want to do is use it as a political slogan. As far as I know. As far as well, you've, you've also advocated you've also advocated at different times. I believe it was you um, that, you know, we've got we've got plenty of land in this country that we could we could house these people um, and that there are plenty of jobs for folks. I, I guess my only my only thing with the immigration stuff. And, and you're right. It was interesting last night. Um, I for me, I think that when you look at the you know, who's most upset? about illegal immigration, people who are coming across the border who are seeking asylum that don't really qualify for asylum. Do, do you know who actually is most upset about that? Is people in this country who have immigrated and and did it through the proper channels, waited and and went through and did it the right way. Those are the people, and it's not Republicans or Democrats, it's people who did it the right way feeling like they actually wanted it. Feeling like they came here for a different reason than just to travel up in a caravan and and try to get into the United States. Those are the people that are most upset about it. The right and way I, I, does not exist for the capacity. The, the, again, the quotas the Republicans put out, unless you're from a Scandinavian country, and not from an asshole country, they don't, you know, the Republicans will, will say, oh, it's because of that, the, the issue you just described, uh, get in line to fair, to, to be fair for everybody instead of cutting the line. But guess what? The lines aren't officially created because we don't want, we want to use it as a, as a political issue. Artificially created? The line is the line. A line the is line, a line. The, the, the line because the capacity is the quotas. The work visa quotas, the natural immigration quotas, all those. We God knows we got besides the ten million of people unfilled jobs, if we were to allow the bigger population, it would be a lot more than ten million people who could be filled as far as the country growing. And again, the whole social security is a red herring issue as far as the so called technical trust fund and the paper BS that is. It's basically the real problem in our country is we don't have enough young people supporting old people because we chose not to take advantage of the fact people want to come to this country and work. Yeah, and and Dave, I think that that there would be other folks that would that would take a different tack to that, and it's not just because we're not allowing people to come into the United States. It's there is there is a fundamental different approach to to children, to having children, to raising children. Um, I think there is a completely different approach. Um, 800-859-0957, 800-859-0WJR, free for all Friday, whatever's on your mind, we can chat about. I just, you know, I'm 35, right? And I know people 
and I'm kind of on the older edge of the this next group of people that are considering maybe no kids at all or maybe um you know we're going to travel or uh, buy golf clubs every year or whatever it is but there is a there is a fundamental change in the way people are viewing families in the way people are viewing home ownership or whether or not they should buy vehicles or they should just rely on public transportation or they should um you know live at home longer with their with their parents there is a different mentality here so i think that when you look at why are there less young people and a growing older population you can start there and it's not like this is new i mean i i know plenty of people who i graduated high school with for example that don't have kids that are just getting married i mean you're 30 you're in your mid 30s early 30s there is a there is a fundamental different way of people are looking at their lives and what they want to do with their lives. So I I think it's an interesting concept, and I I don't disagree that there isn't stuff for people to do here. But I think that there is there there is a necessity to fulfill that role of bring us your weary, your weak. We still want to be the melting pot. We still want to be a place that you can come and prosper. Because that's the American dream. What we don't want to be is a country of of lawlessness. We don't want to be. I don't want to be a country where even our 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 immigration laws that we have, our asylum laws aren't even followed. I mean, I, I think you can have your cake and eat it too on this issue, quite frankly. But they've made it so difficult. And you're right. The the different types of of quotas, as you put it that are being put on a number of of immigration issues, that's fine. But the reality is, could more be done? Should more be done? But I, I, I don't know that the answer is just letting people stream across the border. 800-859-0957. Uh, let's go real quick to Paul in Brighton. i got about a minute, Paulie. What's up? Chris, I'm not hearing on the great voice of the Great Lakes all about the great Biden economy, the 5.2% mm. third quarter growth. Growth uh, uh, revised upward, by the way, from 4.9% when everybody expected, oh, that's 4.9, that's way overperforming. It's going to go down. No, it went up. And the comparisons that we should be making to the great Trump economy that never had a quarter over 3.1%, mm-hmm. <laughs> that was in second quarter 2019. And then third quarter, he followed up with a great 1.9%. And fourth quarter 2019 was 2.1%. And then we hit COVID and the, the economy contracted by a third. We're not hearing about those great comparisons here on the Great Voice of the Great Lakes, Chris. No, and, and I don't know that you'll hear it on this show, uh, Paul, and I appreciate the call. I'd love to continue on where, where I'm up against the break. Um, interest rates are still high. Groceries are still too high. Gas is still too high. Um, you, the cost of cars is about to go up. Things are changing. So you can talk about the Biden economics and the Biden economy all you want, but real-world prices for people are still too high. Got to take a break. More next. All right, so we're in a free-for-all Friday, which means we're talking whatever you want to talk about. We do our best to pick our topics that you that you that we think will resonate with you, that matter to you, but we can't do it all. So if there's something you want to rap about, 800-859-0957, 800-859-0WJR. Brian, you know what's funny? Let me ask you this. When people lose power with DTE, right? 
What what's what what is always the first thing they say? What what do we need to do with the lines? Uh, at, at my house, we the first thing we say is not good for the radio. Uh, but okay, they all say we want to bury the lines. Yes. <laughs> okay, so we want to bury the lines because we think that the lines will be protected, right? When they're underground, that there will be less of a, a likelihood of something bad happening, like a power outage. Well, certainly, not trees that it, can't take them down if they're underground. Yeah. Right. Not saying that it's foolproof. Oh, not saying that. that something could catastrophically go wrong and and there would be an issue even if your lines are underground. But the the the, the message is always, well, bury them. Let's bury them. OK. I bring that up because here's here's something that I want to talk about here. here here's my free for all Friday. These numb nuts out there that have a problem with Enbridge burying Line 5. It doesn't make any sense to me why you wouldn't put it underground. Now, if you want to tell me you don't want natural gas, if you want to tell me that you want to do away with it, okay, fine. I still look at you like you're crazy, but at least there's a bit of an argument there. For people who say, don't bury it, you, I can't take you seriously. I can't. Because when people lose power, their first thought is, well, bury the lines. Why? Because the idea is that they're safer there. The idea is that you won't lose power as often. So why wouldn't we bury line five? It doesn't make any sense. So for people today who were at the Michigan Public Service Commission who decided that the Line 5 pipeline should be buried underground, which is the best option and would be in the best public uh, uh, position for people to still get fossil fuels, to still get natural gas, while being a much more safer option. For people to be in that room yelling, shut it down and blood on your hands, might I interest you in a new hobby? Because this is, I, I, I don't understand it. I cannot understand it. So if you can help me understand, I'd love to. I'd love to, to hear from you. But when the decision, when the, when the, when the, the edict is, well, why my power's been out for 48 hours, bury the lines, bury the lines. And you don't have that same thought about an oil pipeline? Ah, I don't know. I don't know that I can take you seriously. 800-859-0957, 800-859-0WJR. Richard in Detroit. What's up, Rich? Good afternoon. How you doing? Hey, what's going on? On the public commission uh, issue, uh, it is absolutely ridiculous. It's outrageous to grant a significant price increase to a public utility that is already um, overpriced grossly underperforming and then to give it two weeks before the price increase kicks in when when their power goes out on residents uh it takes them more than two weeks to even turn the dog on power back on why would they have to give them such a uh a quick increase of those prices it's ridiculous yeah. and there should be outrage yeah. in the streets over this yeah, and, and, and Richard, I knew this would be the reaction from a lot of folks, and, and rightfully so. I don't think there's anybody 
that would necessarily disagree with you. Now, those at DTE would say, we need the rate increase, we need the price hike, because we need to make necessary grid updates. We need to put more technology in so that we can start your your services back up faster without sending people to breakers or trans uh, 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 transformers or different sites. We can get people up quicker if we have certain technology. And and I, I, Richard, I don't know if you heard my analogy earlier, but to me, it almost feels like our roads. Like we can throw, you know hundreds and hundreds of millions and billions of dollars at our roads. And the reality is we're too far behind. We're too far gone on how bad our roads are and how bad they've been for decades. And it feels like the money isn't even going to make the fix anymore. It's not going to do the job. It almost feels like that to a certain extent with DTE. Now I'd I'd love to talk with somebody at DTE about this and what they're going to do with this money, but it's still, that thought from people where it's like, okay, well, I've been out of you know power now for five days, six days, seven days, it comes back on, and you're now asking for more money from me. I get it. Same I absolutely DTE, get it. DT always says that uh, on the past five increases that they've got, they say they're going to do the same things, and they always turn around and ask for a new price increase, but the problems never get fixed. It's like yeah. almost the same thing with the the help, uh, the the computer hacking that you brought up. Everyone mm-hmm. knew, or at least I knew, that when the Obamacare piece came through and they required all of the health care to go online with the computers, there was mm-hmm. a hacking problem then, and they forced yep. them to put all of our private insurance and everything of our private health stuff online and I was opposing it then upon the grounds that uh, Obamacare shouldn't pass until they did something about that because you knew everything was going to get hacked and right, all our information right. would be out there. Yeah, or you knew at least the, the possibility existed. Uh, Richard, good stuff, man. Appreciate you. Have a good weekend. Let's go to Tom in Ann Arbor. What's up, Tommy? Well, I just want to say I feel sorry for that new football coach at Michigan State. And I'm going to tell you why. Because all, all right. those trustees on there are liberal, woke Democrats that stick their nose into everything. And, uh, you know, they couldn't even get along with that last president, that Samuel Stanley, probably mm-hmm. because he wasn't liberal and woke enough. And he was only there two or three years, and he left there. And I wouldn't be surprised if the the trustees were the ones that got that woman involved you know, what, with Tucker saying, well, we want this woman come in and, and teach your uh, players how, you know, not to be masculine and, and stuff like that. They're probably the ones that hired that woman to come in there and tell Tucker uh, he's got to, you know, have these uh, this woman teach her uh, players on how to, you know, be unmasculine and, and treating a woman and stuff. And uh, All right, t- Tom, <clears throat> Tom, all right, thank you, thank you. I, I do want to make a couple of corrections there. Everybody at the university works at the pleasure of the board of trustees. All right. So if if the problem, if you have a problem with the board of trustees, fine, that's fine. I don't believe, to my knowledge, that the board of trustees had any input on Brenda Tracy coming to speak to the football team. I think that was an uh, a request that if it, 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 
if not Mel Tucker or somebody in the football department, the athletic department would have made that request. I don't believe that was a mandated uh, visit by the Board of Trustees. Second of all, Brenda Tracy is a rape survivor. Brenda Tracy was was gang raped by football players. I don't think that she is teaching the demasculization of men. I think she's trying to instill a bit of, uh, I don't even know, a bit of humanity, a bit of a, a bit of reality that your decisions have consequences. I don't think that's that's taking away somebody's masculinity. I think that's speaking from experience through a horrific situation and tr- make in, and at least attempting to potentially save somebody's life by stopping an attack. I'm not sure those two things compute to me. Appreciate the call. 800-859-0957. Got to take a break. More next. Little Fat Joe to end the week. How about that? All right, welcome back. 800-859-0957. Big football weekend. Steve Courtney joins us to break it all down. Steve, I will say, though. Yes. Uh, first of all, uh, happy Friday to you. Nice to talk with you. Back at you there, young Chris, and certainly hope you're able to bounce back a little bit this weekend. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, it is. Uh, it will be, a. you know, maybe I should use it as a, an excuse to just plant in the uh, in the old couch and just watch football. I have a feeling that won't work. But tonight it's it's the it's the end of an era. The Pac-12 yeah. is is this this is the equivalent of of like the death penalty. Like we're, we are seeing the last Pac-12 game ever. Yeah, it's kind of Tonight, sad. the championship yeah. game. It is sad. I feel bad for uh, everybody affected. Uh, although, uh, looking forward to the four teams joining the Big Ten. Um, but you do have to feel uh, for uh, the two existing members of the Pac-2. Uh, Oregon State, Washington State. I don't think there's been anything concrete or substantial, Chris, about Mm-mm. what their potential landing spot is going to be. I will tell you this. I think the Pac-12 is going to go out with a bang tonight uh, with Oregon and Washington. Can't wait. Yeah, I think it's going to be a fun one, too. In the meantime, uh, where do we want to start? Do we want to start college or pro? Well, you know what? Let me start with this. Our conversation, Chris, brought to you by the Performance Remodeling Sweepstakes. Performance Remodeling, a preferred partner of the Inside Outside Guys, kicked off another $100,000 window of opportunity sweepstakes. Request your windows, roofing, and siding quote today. Log into windowsroofingsiding.com to enter the performance remodeling sweepstakes. Uh, Let's begin with the uh, Big Ten championship game. Uh, Going on tomorrow night, uh, Lucas Oil Field in beautiful Indianapolis. Uh, You've got to be beside yourself. uh, Giddy, I would even say, Chris uh, Harbaugh, is going to be back on the sideline after he completed that three-game conference-imposed suspension. Um, remember, uh, Michigan and Iowa, they squared off in the championship two seasons ago. Uh, the Wolverines took care of business in short order, obliterating the Hawkeyes 42-3 to uh, before going on to lose to George in the playoff semifinal. Uh, Michigan, as it stands right now, 
favored by 22. Many under the impression um, that this is potentially over by halftime at the latest. <laughs> Maybe the first quarter. I'm not sure. I mean, look, I, I don't know that. I really don't know how Iowa scores in this game. I mean, unless things go really wacky and there are turnovers, you know, deep in Michigan territory, then you could see some points. But I, I don't know how how Iowa has the ability to sustain a drive. I just I I I don't know that they they have the ability to. So I, I think yeah, this could be over pretty quickly. Well, here's the thing uh, that Iowa uh, behind their fine head coach who's been there forever, Kirk Ferentz, hanging their hats on Michigan and Iowa ranked first and fourth respectively in the nation in scoring defense. As a matter of fact, the Hawkeyes have won four straight, seven of their last eight. They have not given up more than 16 points in any of those contests. That being said, Chris, uh, let's just be real. Uh, The Hawkeyes uh, have to play flawless, flawless football and hope at the same time uh, Michigan is off their game, like, by a lot. That J.J. McCarthy... Uh, is off. Uh, Blake Corum yep. forgets how to run. Um, you know, that kind of thing. Well, and think about it, too. They've amassed those stats in the Big Ten West full of the likes of Minnesota, Northwestern, Nebraska. I mean, stop me whenever you want. It, it is a it is a putrid offering in the Big Ten West. So uh, it's nice that they're able to, to boast some of these stats, but they they really haven't played a caliber of team like Michigan yet. So I, oh. I I'm gonna just I'm gonna I'm gonna pen it in as a W and we'll see Michigan in the playoffs. Well here's the thing and uh, this is the stat I'll leave everybody on. Uh the Big Ten East is nine and oh in the conference championship game. Uh the West has never has never won. Oh and by the way oh. Uh, something else I mentioned, JJ McCarthy. The dude is twenty-four and one as a starter. Wow, that's impressive. Uh, big Lions game uh, this Sunday as well. They they need a bounce back. I mean, I was down in Florida with my family and we watched the game, and uh, they said, "Are the Lions going to lose?" And I said, "No, no way." And then about halfway through, I said, "Well, you know, it is kind of." It's tradition for the Lions to lose on Thanksgiving. That's how we know we're having a good Thanksgiving. Uh, they need to bounce back. They need to bounce back in a big way. Well, they're 2-0 and uh, following losses this year. And uh, Dan Campbell, certainly not one to panic. Uh, he has stated that he is very excited about where this football team is. And look, the the overall deal, Chris, they're 8-3 and three, uh, in the driver's seat of the NFC North, in a position to win a division for the first time in some 30 years. Uh, but know this. Um, you know, the Lions have got to take care of the football. Uh, they have had seven turnovers, of which Jared Goff is, is responsible for six over the last two ball games. Oh, and by the way, uh, the Saints in a first-place tie in the beleaguered NFC South with the Atlanta Falcons at five and six. So they're still playing for something, uh, and they're not going to roll over. So uh, hopefully uh, the Lions can get it together. They got a, a, a 1 o'clock game against New Orleans uh, on Fox. Aren't you going down to New Orleans? Yeah, that was in the works, and uh, you know, along the way, at uh, oh, okay. You know. okay. But I will say this: well, the Lions are your four liver and a half probably points. thanks you. <laughs> yes, and uh, yeah, 
I do listen to my liver every once in a while. Yes. Ken Brown yeah. with some parting words here. Hello, gentlemen. Hey, KB. Hello. Yeah. How are you? Where are you at, uh, Chris, well, on your way to uh, Indianapolis? To... I'm in quarantine. I'm the bubble boy from <laughs> Seinfeld today. <laughs> Going to Indianapolis yeah. to make sure Harbaugh gets that trophy tomorrow? No. Uh, no, I think we're doing some uh, Christmas light trail thing tomorrow Okay. with the kids. All right. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's my plan. If, mm-hmm. if I feel well, I don't even know if I'll go. Uh, mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, no, look, uh, this Saints team is, uh, they're not good. Coming off that Packers game, they, they need to they need to come away with a big win here, and it's on the road, hostile territory, so they got to they got to get this done. Just get in, get a win, get out. I don't care if it's by one point or hundred. Right. Get a win. You just right. want to go to nine and three. Well, based That's on what, what based on what we saw against the Packers, what's the chances of Derek Carr airing it out on the first play? What does he have to lose? If, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, fair. I actually have somebody back to this time. You watch that play again. Tracy Walker totally blew up. It was on the throne ball. Idea. I have no it idea how it was ball. completed. I have no idea that It should have been fair through. caught. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So. Uh, KB, do you have any Jared Goff hate that you want to spout? I uh, told you where I'm at with Jared Goff, go. man. I'm not going to. Look, yeah, everybody in my podcast has been calling me the hater. I'm just going to say one thing. Yeah, you're a hater. I'm all right with the Detroit version, but if we revert back to the L.A. version, then we're going to have problems. That's just it. Okay, what do we got, com- what do we got coming up today? Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the debate last night, the big no. uh, governorial rebate debate, excuse me. The debate the nobody debate. asked for? Yeah, nobody asked for it. Nobody. I'm still trying to figure out why. We're going to talk to Angelique Shingalis about the Michigan game tomorrow. We're going to talk to Tim yep. 20 minutes about the Lions. And we're going to talk about, is it manly to use a straw? Mm. You know, I don't I don't use a straw. Like Why? when I'm out at a restaurant, I don't use a straw. Why? I don't know. I like the sensation of drinking out of the cup. You got problems. Okay. All right. Okay. Oh, so I should be using a straw? Yes, you should. What's wrong with a straw? Oh, no. I don't know. Maybe it's how I got Unless sick. Unless you got a, right, have a good chi- weekend. A daiquiri. Good job with the crew. Coming up. <laughs>